It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm not finished yet. It took me a long time to get here. Both pairs have, have spoken with each other and... Uh, and they regret what happened. They've had a frank discussion with each other, and they're, they're both of them are keen to, to now focus on getting back to their county journeys. But these fellas will get such a shit shot next Saturday evening that we'll put them back in their houses for 10 years. All right, so we got the news we were waiting for, lads. The GEA have confirmed that there's going to be no... Well, the, the season's not starting in May, like it was, you know, scheduled for, but we all knew that anyways. And it was Alan Milton I was listening to on the news the other night saying July at the earliest. And that makes sense. That's kind of what we were we were predicting. And there's a Congress this Friday, a remote Congress. So the delegates can pretty much do really do anything they want now. They're at home in their own house um, uh, voting with nobody, nobody. (laughs) No transparency. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely no transparency here. But like, I mean, they're going to give the GEA manage a management committee the power to, you know, roll with the punches here and, you know, make the changes necessary, Conan, as we're going along. Yeah, I'm sort of, to be honest, just giving up on a season <laughs> at this stage. Like, um, just seeing, like, what they're talking about in America and the stuff they're proposing in the Premier League and how the length that they'd have to go to to make a tournament happen behind closed doors even because, like, every single person who plays and contributes to that event who reports on it, like they'd all have to be in isolation together and then once you step back outside that then you put everything on holding you for another two weeks and you have to do more tests and I just don't see how you can do that with the GA like at least the Premier League give the carrot of well like we'll pay you for it just stay away from your family for a few months and just everybody stay here together but the GA I just just don't see how that happens and also if it's behind closed doors what's the point really for the GA you know unless everything dramatically improves but like if there's no money being made from gate receipts then the GA I'm sure they won't be rushing to put people at risk like that I don't think I think I think he's right um, Connor on the behind closed doors Patrick Horgan was talking about that and he's talking about playing in an empty stadium wouldn't be too exciting even for clubs with no one in the grounds it would be hard he says there's a bu- there's the buzz of it it keeps you on edge all week getting up against uh 
great players there for everyone to see. Now, it would be on television. Um, it would put you on an edge and get you nervous. That's what we play for. Being able to hear the ball coming off the hurley around the stadium wouldn't be too good. And I do understand that paid professionals might need to play in front of empty stadiums. GA is amateur. It's a community-based organisation. Without the fans, you know, what is it really? So I, I'm like, I, I, I would like to see it go ahead in empty stadiums rather than have nothing at all. But I could see if the GA aren't going to make money out of it, where's the motivation to go behind closed doors? Well, that's the ultimate question. What do you prefer? Do you prefer GA in front of crowds or do you prefer, you know, would you would you prefer, you know, the GA not going ahead at all or would you prefer it in front of behind closed doors? Like, I, I think that we have to be careful what we wish for in terms of that. Like, like last week, I was thinking, right, OK, if there's even a, some sort of return, even if it's behind closed doors and we can see it on TV, I think we'd be happy with that. But like, how often have we talked about here and even as even as far into a competition as the Super 8s? where there might be a game in Crowe Park that might have 30,000 people at it. And it's just because the stadium isn't full and because, you know, there's there's such, there's such a, la- a lack of atmosphere, it, it, yeah. it's kind of an anti-climax. So desperate, while, yeah, you're right. That's that's the thing. So while, while, while we're now thinking, geez, listen, I'd watch, I'd watch, you know, three lads doing a drill in a field just to get my fix of GA. I think, I think that the prospect of actually behind closed doors, while it might sound okay, you know, as something acceptable for the time being, I'd say once we're in the middle of it, we might quickly grow tired of it. Yeah, I could feel the analysis on the show every Monday after these matches was, would be, I kind of felt like a challenge match, you know, that kind of way. There's some managers and they want a, a date. Like Kieran Kingston has been on saying, they want, this is probably why the GEA had to release this statement and let people know what the story was. They're actually interesting that the GEA are going to, they are going to finish out the, the Alliance Leagues. And I was seeing somebody suggesting that they should finish the Alliance Leagues next year instead of the pre-season competition. So at least we know, we'll know what the, the league standings are for the tier two and all, all, everything that goes along with that. Maybe that might be a bit too late. But Kieran Kingston is saying the one thing that will be helpful to guys that are training on their own and you're asking them to be self-motivated, they need some sort of a deadline. And Declan Bonner has been saying the same thing. He said, if the GA could set up a provisional date so that we could start planning accordingly, our backroom teams can then start to taper training to a particular date. And even if that doesn't happen, at least the players will have had positive targets to work towards. I can see where they're coming from, but why don't like why would the managers not set them a, a date if they're so desperate for a date to motivate them? Like, I mean, the, the reality the reality is players aren't stupid, Conan. And like you, you're going to the GA come out and say right July first we're starting, and then that's cancelled. Like, I mean, it's madness that they would the GA would suggest a date ahead of medical advice. And then on the other hand, I can see where managers kind of are coming from. They're probably kind of a bit sick of being in no man's land. Ah, yeah, but they'd be hammered either way. Imagine they said July 1st and then Leo Bratker stands up on June 28th and says, we're standing up for another three weeks and then we're yeah. all hammering the GA for suggesting that. We'd be hammering them beforehand as well, as you say, for jumping ahead of medical advice. And like, what can, what can you do? Their hands are tied. They're, they're being told, we've all been told, things are off for another three weeks. We know it's going to be longer, but like, you know, they can't just go ahead now and speculate that we're going to put on a firm date for October. And like, that's probably the best way. Like, like the league, I think we have to forget about that. Like there's already precinct. That's the good news with, with club teams. Like remember the Galway Hurden final? Was it a, in 2018, they played the 2015 Hurden league final or something like that. Yeah. So it's not something that people aren't used to, but um, 
Yeah, in terms of the, giving the date, like that's probably the only way. Like managers just give people targets. Like, is at this rate, it's going to be a knockout at the end of the year, if if anything. So they don't need to be told July or anything. That's the thing. I'm, I'm sure players are are definitely struggling with motivation. There's no doubt about that. But there's no one stopping a manager saying, "Look, because listen, everybody's opinion, like." there's no one has the right answer to this. So if a manager wants to go into WhatsApp group and say, look, lads, I was reading an article there. We're going to be getting going on July the 1st. I want you primed for that. And like, work away. There's nobody stopping them doing that. It's just the GEA aren't going to commit to that, Connor. Well, the management, like a management team setting a date is as good as the GEA setting one. Because yeah. They're both, as Conan said, their hands are all their hands are tied by the government and, and how they react based on public advice, uh, based on advice from the public health team. And like, there's no sign, there's no sign anywhere at the moment. And it's not just Ireland; like even countries that are far ahead of, like I was reading recently that New Zealand are considering a return to rugby, but there's only been like nine deaths. I think in New Zealand they've handled it really well. So, but they haven't even they haven't even factored in how that might come about yet. And they're at a they're at a far more advanced level than we are in terms of dealing with the virus. So, so setting the date, it, it's like it's it's kind of a nearly a pointless exercise. Like I can absolutely understand where they're coming from in terms of all all players have to do now is set themselves, all they can do is maintain their personal fitness and to a certain degree, their skill level is doing whatever they can do. So they've no goal to aim for. Like managers can't be shouting in their ears about a day, like a championship date down the line that they have to aim for. But no more than everybody else, they just have to be patient. Like pe- people are starting to get a bit itchy now because especially before the Easter weekend, the deadline was extended by three weeks. But that's like all we can do is wait on guidance from the Department of Health and the government, etc. So like like setting a date to me seems a bit of a pointless exercise at the moment. Yeah, no, it definitely does. So season ticket holders aren't going to get refunds. Um, that's in the small print. John Fogarty had this. It says in the small print that in the event of the GA season, National League or Championship being postponed due to circumstances outside the control of the GEA, that being a natural disaster or a pandemic, there will be no refunds available for GEA season ticket holders. So, geez, they have themselves well covered for a pandemic <laughs> like this uh, happening. So, like, I mean, some people will get kind of stung for that because um, season tickets are 120 quid. Uh, that gets in, into league games and the first championship game, plus All-Ireland Club finals. Um, for 200 quid, then, you can get the club plus option, and that gets you intri- entry into all club games. And then there's a 300 euro, 300 euro Ulster Club plus um, one which includes county club and Dr McKenna Cup and then under 17, under 20 fixtures, all that kind of thing. So if you're an absolute diehard lunatic that spent 300 quid on your on your season ticket holders up in Ulster, Conan, you might be a little bit pissed off, but I suppose there's a bigger picture here, right? We have to keep giving that context. Yeah, but that is the shame. Like it is the diehard lunatics who are unfortunately going to be stung by it. Like you're the ones who probably deserve deserve it most or don't deserve it most, and it's really tough on them. Like the GA has themselves covered, but it's a shame in that you know they're not going to be putting any money into organising a competition, so they're just sort of getting this money as a bonus. So it would be nice if next year came along or like you know further down the line or whatever they can just give these people who have already bought a season ticket some sort of subsidy. Like, it just seems a bit tough on them that they'll have bought season tickets for games that they're not going to see all year. Yeah, exactly. Talking about diehards, we have David Brady, Alan Brogan and Johnny Doyle. They're ringing old people um, who are cocooning all over the country. And Alan Brogan joins us on the line now. Alan, you're a glutton for punishment. Have you, Willie? Yeah, look, I saw the side I saw the tweet from David on, on I think it was Saturday um, and I thought just that's a nice idea and like obviously it is I'm here and I'm here in the house with with, with my wife and 
my three kids so there's plenty to keep me occupied but when I thought about what maybe old people and particularly old people on their own are going through it is a very difficult time and um, I suppose I threw, I threw the tweet out there and I got lots of lots of responses back which was nice so so, so I'm making my way through them and um, I think we made about 18 or 20 phone calls at this stage and some very interesting phone calls some it's just a quick hello a few minutes on the phone and but everyone to be fair has been very uh has been very happy to receive the call and been very thankful, which is nice, I suppose. But um, yeah, look, I spoke to a couple of, I spoke to a man up and he's living up in in West Cavan on his own. He's from um, he's from Clanlis, lived in Dublin till for for I think till he was sixty five or sixty six, and then he moved up there with his wife, and his wife passed away. So he's up there on his own. His son's got to visit him with with field and stuff but he's out in the country on his own so for suppose for a fellow like him to receive the call and you probably knew more about Dublin football than I did now tell me about the All-Ireland at 55 and 58 and so it's been a bit of a, a history lesson for me as well Very good and are they expecting the call off you or are some of them surprised? Um, most of them have been surprised I think um, yeah, that was not like how I did it was I got I received messages mostly off their children or maybe off a, off a grandchild or something would you give me would you give me granny a call or would you would you give me dad a call and I just sent a DM on Twitter to get the details some gave me lots of details about what, they, what their dad and mom had kind of done who they'd been involved in and that sort of thing so I was able to use that to form the base of a, of a conversation um, but look all the conversations have been I think I already spoke to one spoke to one gentleman at home he was at a talk up in um, um, at Club and Loud a few years ago Kevin Heffernan was giving a talk so he went up to hear the talk and Kevin Heffernan was asked who was the if he could take anyone off the existing team onto the team in the 70s who would he take and, and he said he'd take me off the existing team this is a few years ago now so to hear that <laughs> now I was uh, I'd never heard that before so to hear that that was nice um, it would have been nice to play in Heffernan's team in the 70s Right, and are they all are they all dubs or is their culties looking for you to call them as well? Not there's a few. Yeah, I spoke to a man from Longford, and the few that a couple of calls were called to me to to man up in Armagh today. So, but most have been dubs to be fair. But not all living in Dublin. Some moved down to Cork. That that gentleman was up there, and he was up in Cavan, and somewhere over west. And I haven't got any international ones yet. Right, strange enough. I saw Dave between as well. We spoke to. Spoke to people in America, but um, most are those, but not all living in Dublin. Maybe some that have moved away and stuff. But uh, and to be fair, all all sound in pretty good form. I think and I'd say the weather has helped a lot of people as well. Anyone that has has a back garden, if you need to get out into the old back garden, but it is kind of when you talk to someone and you hear if their husband or husband or wife have passed away and they can pass whatever which lots of them obviously have and they're, and they're kind of on their own, kind of relying on the support of family to bring food and maybe somebody down the road to bring food and their only contact with people is maybe out a window or out a front door um, on a phone call like that, that 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 I'm sure is tough. So look, I just thought it was it was a nice thing to do. It's, it's obviously taken up a little bit of time, but it's time that I probably have my hands at the moment, bear in mind and minding the kids at home and doing a little bit of work. So and I suppose to myself, I thought I, like I'm at home and there's obviously lots of people out there have to go to work and do their eight or their, eight or their 12 hour shifts in hospitals or in supermarkets or in GP practice around the country um, I'm probably lucky enough that I don't have to go out and face and face this thing head on we're just really cold to stay at home so I suppose we can do a little something to help like that um, it's uh, it's worthwhile yeah how how did, how did the conversations go how's it going it's Alan Brogan here I'm just giving you a ring I'm sure there's dead silence on the phone for for a little while then is there 
yeah, I kind of, I kind of said when I was on Twitter with whoever had asked me to do it, I'd say, will they know me? And and all the calls come back, or all the all the mess come back. Yeah, they'll hundred percent know who you are. So kind of, hey, look, I, 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 I got a message off your son or your daughter or your your grandchild or whatever said you were you were at home missing the GEA on your own. And I said I'd just give you a call to to uh, to make sure you're doing okay and stuff. And some of them thought it was a wind up. Um, I spoke to a couple of dogs now, real inner city dogs now. Go way out of that, will you? <laughs> <laughs> Some of them did think it was a lineup, so I had to kind of convince them. I had to go through my CV to convince them that it was the real, uh, <laughs> that, that it was a real me. But um, after a couple of minutes, they, they, they kind of got into the car and, and, and uh, look, we said some of the cars went down. Maybe probably the shortest car I've had is probably five or six minutes, and maybe some of them have gone on for. Uh, I said the longest one is probably twenty. 22 minutes so um, and look I'm obviously conscious that, that, I've, that I've kind of committed once I've said to somebody you have to ring I've, I've committed to doing it so you're, you kind of take an hour when you have an hour you have an hour free and you try to get through four or five and then obviously some calls take longer than others and then, and then it, it's it, it's um, and if you're talking to someone you want to be able to give them the time as well so, so rather than doing one or two minute calls and hopping off and hopping on to the next one I said look take the time if somebody wants to have a chat and Maybe tell me some of their uh, some of their stories as well, and I'm I'm happy to lend that ear as well. And yeah. um, I'll get through them over the next two or three weeks. I think we've another we've another two and a half weeks for this anyway. So look, if I do three or four calls a day, that'll uh, you get through them. So I like, them all out and hopefully it'll make a little bit of a difference. So, like, I mean, it's all right for you, Alan Brogan, calling people. Like, I mean, that's nice. Like, if I try to do that, hello, Colin Parkinson here. Who the fuck is that guy? I could be just hung up on depending on what club they're from like you don't know what's going on there. <laughs> like, uh, like, you'd be surprised you'd be you... surprised when you come to the end of a career and stuff I think people always uh, they, feel, like, they just want to talk about GEA they just, yeah, like, yeah. They, they're just GEA people Any, like anyone that has asked me they're pure GEA people and, and, and and I said, oh, yeah, they want to, some want to go back to 2011, some want to go back to 1955 to the first All-Ireland Day, we're at a 58, whatever year it was. And some want to talk about when it was only Vincent's players in the Dublin team. Actually, that's come across a few times when, when people talk about maybe the first All-Ireland Day. I think it was 55, Dublin were in the All-Ireland Day, 58, I'm not sure, but it was all, I think it was all Vincent. So, really? so Jesus. these people were obviously... Um, ten or twelve or fifteen years old. So, so kind of Vincent was the club team that any that everyone sort of gravitated because um, because all the Dublin players were Vincent. Like there might have been one other fella from uh, from Old Wires or something like that, but it was it was it was nearly all Vincent. So, so even like there's a lot of GA people out there, aren't but especially in Dublin, aren't necessarily affiliated with clubs either. Um, so so. So the club they naturally kind of gravitate towards the St Vincent's because of um, when they supported Dublin when the, when they were kids all the all the lads were uh, were Vincent Flairs which is which is kind of, I never really realised it either I knew it was all Vincent but I never realised that that there kind of would have been a, a grow towards St Vincent's from 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 people from all over Dublin because of uh, because of their representation on the Dublin team at the time. Right, right, maybe. So, like, I mean, this is a big commitment. Do, do you think this could pass past the three weeks mark, May the fifth? Like, I mean, rural isolation is a big issue. You, you don't, you don't know what you've signed up for here, Alan. There'll be charities yeah, looking no, for you. Take, uh, 
and so it'll die off a little bit now. I've got a couple of text messages, maybe people that went on Twitter and stuff heard about it. I think I think the Herald had something on us um, a couple of days ago. I've got a couple of text messages over the last few days and heard you're doing this because you're in this person from um, a, couple of people, a couple of people in hospital and stuff. So it has, has grown a little bit of legs, all right, but as I said, I'm happy to do what the times are in and obviously have a bit of spare time on my hands now at the moment because we're home from work and stuff. But um, uh, yeah, look, it'll. It, I'm sure well, off again. Yeah, and well, I made I made a fifth. You'll have to. I made a fifth. You'll have to delete that tweet. <laughs> <laughs> this, this offer, I should have put a little elastic. This offer stands and made a fifth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's an expiry date on this offer. Um, come here. You mentioned you mentioned 2011, and like I mean, we're all watching your Lake Regale. Um, were you happy with the Lake Regale? How it turned out and everything. I was, I think, yeah, I was. I don't know how the bit ended up in there about the messing against Leash back a few years ago. That must have been your influence. But, <laughs> but uh, I suppose it can't be all, uh, it can't be all good. But now I was happy with it, to be fair. I think we did a very good job on it. And, and yeah, look, I know we were supposed to be coming along yourself. We were going to have a, a, a kind of a family and friends night the Friday before it aired, but I had to cancel it at the last minute because of uh, because of the coronavirus um but I watched it at home and yeah, I think I was happy with it. I got lots of lovely messages as well. I suppose it was nice just just to sit back and have a look back over over some over some of my achievements over the years and to see some of the games well. So it's I've never really been one to look back at games that I've I've uh I've played in years, but once it's gone it's kinda of gone. So it was nice to look back over some of those memories and as I think of fairness to the lads in there and T G Card who did um they did a very good job on it. And you did a good job yourself yeah. as well. They, they do uh, they do a great job on it and I was reading an interview Oshie McConville did it uh, during the week in the Irish News and he was asked about his uh, the All-Ireland Final 2002 and Oshie McConville says I've never watched a full game back I only uh, forward to my parts <laughs> and I have to say <laughs> any time I've ever watched a match back there's been a fair bit of forward and, re- and rewinding being done and like with the Lake Regale obviously it's all about you so it's absolutely perfect you don't have to watch any of yeah, it yeah yeah you can sit back and enjoy it and well, so when you're analysing match just like say the week or two after or even watch them later on you're kind of you're only not you're only interested in what you do but you're like you're looking for areas for yourself to improve rather than rather than everyone improves um, when you're doing it on your own so like I said I never really was one to sit back and look back over matches it was always on to the next one or whatever and now I don't have the time to sit down and look, look back at all matches so it was nice to take the hour and uh, and uh, yeah just remember some of the fun memories that one thing I was surprised about was the games, the games against Leash and stuff, where um, there was always uh, that team that played on in, 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 in um, say, from 02 to 2010 before we managed to win the All Ireland. Obviously, the team that won the All Ireland after that gets a lot of the accolades now, but that's, that's a team with very fond memories of. And there were some great games against the likes of Leash and Leash and Wexford and Kildare and the Leinster Championship around then with, with, with full houses in Crow Park. So it was good to look back on them too. Yeah, no, definitely. Camira, one thing that wasn't in the show was the Alan Brogan bounce. And I'm surprised they didn't ask me about it. I should have brought it up. Where this uh, started and how it evolved. Because you did start this bounce where you take 10 steps with one bounce and uh, hold it up in the air. Where did this come to your head? Yeah, I don't know. It's something that evolved, it's evolved over time. But it only really works in... You don't know, really work on hard ground in the summertime because you bounce it out far in front and you have to chase after it. But it's funny, my son is 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 um is a big fan of Rory Stories and, and a couple of his friends met Rory Stories um a couple of months back and asked him to sign an autograph for Jamie. And he signed it um 
Dear Jamie, the best of luck or whatever. Um, your dad filled the whole country with that 10 yard bounce for years um, <laughs> and a smiley face, you know. So, uh, so Jamie was asking, about, What's this bounce about that? So, I've been, I've been teaching him to bounce now over the last couple of months to try to get an extra few steps in and, and feel some referees. But, yeah, look, it probably works my advantage a couple of times over. Maybe they did take a couple of extra steps using it over the years. But, um, yeah, it was something that evolved. It wasn't something that evolved necessarily on purpose, but it did evolve over time and, and, and and um, it's something that definitely helped me on and, and, and hot days in Crow Park when the ground was hard. Yeah, it, well, it wasn't just the bounce. It was that you had about four steps in the action of the bounce. You'd hold it up for about, it would be <laughs> held up in your hand for about three or four steps. And then by the time you bounce it, you could be on six, seven steps. And by the time you catch it, you're up to ten. It was the 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 the, the kind of pause in actually bouncing it. Yeah, I generally use it when there's someone hanging on me on the other side as well before I get away <laughs> yeah. from them, just hold it up there and get an extra couple of steps in. So, um, like yeah. a slam dunk. So a lot of cases, I probably would have got a free anyway. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. Right, come here. I won't, I won't keep you any longer, Alan. Fair play to what you're doing, and we'll talk to you again. Thanks, Willie. So yeah, the Alan Brogan bounce, um, lads, like, I mean, iconic at this stage. I've used it myself a couple of times, and it really, really does work. There's no doubt about that, Conan. Yeah, I remember seeing it work against Sean Marty Lockhart in 2007 and thought, Jesus, it must be really good if it's working against him. Um, like, ah, oh, he just had it all. I remember, like you said, in his Acre Gale, like he was a man who was always looking for the ball and always making things happen. Like, but um, I, I still remember after so Derry played Dublin in the 2007 quarterfinal and afterwards just bumping into Lockhart and he just sort of been hinting at retiring and it was the reason was running around after boys like Alan Brogan all day <laughs> like you know it's right. just he was getting older at that stage and thought I can't be arsed for this nonsense like and like, that's the effect Alan Brogan had I just, just a nightmare to mark and one thing that struck me about the late Regale like well I kind of knew it anyways but like I mean it was painted out 2011 player of the year 2012 injury and never really recovers from the injury like to go from player of the year to not to retiring in 15 just in and out and in and out through injury and like to go to such a height and it was such a kind of kind of a fall then really after that yeah but like just watching back the Alan Brogan Laker Gale particularly just reminded me there of um the, the, the game that obviously took my attention was the 2006 semi-final against Mayo and look like the job he did on as good as like Keith Higgins mightn't have been established as he was let's say later in his career but the job that Alan Brogan did on Keith Higgins that day it was just it was phenomenal stuff Alan Brogan couldn't miss and he like he, he was probably the best player on the pitch but it was that was kind of overlooked because Mayo won the game but that's right and like well, our, Alan Brogan told a great story actually about uh, in the league regale about I think he was dropped for the semi-final was he and he I think he was told just beforehand it was just no, like, no, he, dear McConnelly and Keegan were suspended and Connolly got yeah. off at the last minute and Alan had been brought in instead of Connolly and then Connolly got the reprieve the night before. That's right. Okay. Yeah. But it was, it was just interesting to hear like somebody who would be so used to starting as Alan Brogan, for example, and have to deal then with just being told, you know, as a result of the, the Connolly getting the reprieve that he wasn't playing. But like, to be fair to him, like it was just because of what happened, because of the circumstances of his career after 2011, it was brilliant that he ended up on that high in the in the 2015 final. And just speaking about that hop that you're on, the, the Alan Brogan bounce that you're on about earlier on, he utilised it fairly well in that score with the with the one two with Bernard at the end against Kerry too. It's great yeah, to see. Yeah, you know he definitely. What do you make of the Laker Gales um, lads going for the likes of David Brady now and Dermot Ling, like players who are not iconic players, as in what they've won. Or, you know, their careers weren't necessarily stellar, but Dermot Ling would have a nice little life story. 
uh, David Brady doesn't really have a life story. I don't know how, why. I, I'm not really sure why he got uh, picked. But, you know, they seem to be moving away from maybe having to have won five All-Irelands or the big players or like that, Conan. What, what do you think of that? Like, I kind of, in my head, if like genuinely, if they were to ring me, you'd, you'd actually, I'd actually say, geez, I don't think so. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't, no, but you wouldn't. I, I don't think I would. I don't think, I'd be like, why... Alan Brogan and Kieran Donaghy were just on this season. Like, think of the players who have done it. I wouldn't feel worthy of going on it. Yeah, well, it's funny. I was actually just getting excited for you when I saw those names. I was thinking, he's Thomas Brogan won't be far away from this. But you're right. Like, I actually, I think, I think Anthony Tohoe is the only one who's done it in Derry. So, like, that's the level that it's at in my head. And right. we see McDonald or Matt. It's just, it has to be the best of the best, I think. And there's still loads of those out there. We have, they, haven't, they haven't gone through all of them. Like, so... Yeah, like maybe it's hard. I know it's hard to put the show together and to do it way in advance, but it seems like they, you know could maybe just be going at the top still. Like I don't know. Yeah, that's the thing. You see, they moved it out from a half an hour to an hour, so they like to bring in a little bit of a life story into it, and that's one thing Alan had reservations about because he's like just being honest. Like I'm just a normal fellow. I don't have any kind of back life story, <laughs> you know, to fill up the rest, the other part of the of the hour. So I think maybe they're under a little bit of pressure of bringing, you know. You know, separating some football with some kind of stuff that happened in your life, maybe, or, you know, more of a TV program. I think that's it. Like, I think previously, Lee Gale was basically, you'd be shit that whoever was the subject would be showing the highlights of a match and maybe talk about that and little bits of their career. But it was very, there was very little kind of um, insight from, let's say, out like off the pitch kind of thing. Whereas the David Brady one, the majority of insight probably necessarily so was off the pitch. He was down at his old primary school. He was on about fishing. He was on about his uh, ventriloquist act when he was down in Australia, which I'd never heard of before. So if, and if, if nothing else, I learned that from the from the David Brady. Uh, <laughs> but maybe maybe it's a case, as Conan said, that they're and like, you know, there could be reticence on the on behalf of the people who, you know, who who have won all the medals. They, they mightn't they mightn't fancy that kind of, you know, being the being the subject of a program for, for an hour long. As you said, like Alan Brogan yeah. said, he's just a fella doesn't want that kind of um, doesn't want that kind of insight into his into his life off the pitch. But uh, the more than the more than Conan, I was getting a little bit excited that they're going for more characters now. So I thought they might give you a shout. But if you've no interest, well then that's that. I would, that I would be em- I would be embarrassed to go on that. Like I mean, the one thing about Gizzy Ling was a class player. Like and he would have been you know maybe achieved similar to me like not you know not being a big player and kind of quit early and all these kind of things David Brady was a very limited player he wasn't even a very a top notch player you know and was on and off the team towards the end so I don't know how he would have agreed to do it you know I would I, like I honestly would say I'm sorry I would be too embarrassed to do something like that and then you had David Brady tweeting during a pandemic about the county board not promoting his bloody show like I mean where's this fella's head, head at yeah, yeah, I mean, even the way it's set up, like it's usually like it, it, we're talking about it being the top players. It, it's set up that way, so then all the people on talking, like you were for Alan Brogan, are talking about this player and such stature, like and what yeah. he brought to the team and him being so important. Like it's yeah, it's going to get harder if they're <laughs> if they're stepping on down the ladder of it. Yeah, yeah, maybe it's just going to be more of an entertainment show or something like that. But I think they would lose out by that because I. What I like about that show is legends of the game and other opponents they've played, mm. given little bits and pieces on them and back onto games. And I think they might lose that if they move too far away, uh, move too far away from that. Another one, lads, before we take a break, was Mark Poland did an interview in the Irish News, and he was talking about the 2010 semi-final against Kildare, and uh, 
He said when her bus cr- pulled up in Croke Park that day underneath the Hogan stand before James McCartan led us off the bus, he played audio of all the voices of the GEA analysts and pundits and all of them tipped Kildare. Um, like, I, number one, like there's a little element of sports psychology to that. And look, we've been written off. We've all heard that one. Like, you know, whoever put together all the... For some reason, people really get the hump about not being tipped to win a match. Do you know what I mean? And we're the underdogs. And maybe that got their... their uh, Maybe that got their, their back up a bit. But this was accompanied by by Florence and the Machine song called You Got the Love. And he said, uh, it sent shivers down my spine, Mark Poland said. And he said, even now when I hear that song on the radio, it, al- it always takes me back to that day. Now, I can understand, Colin, the sports psychology around playing the pundits. But what has Florence of the Machine, You Got the Love, got to do with any kind of football uh, song? Like, who chose this music? And how is this, how is this in any way related to what, the pundits kind of tipping against your team. Ah, it's a good song, though, Willie. It's, it's a good like, you know, <laughs> bit of music can really make make a, a any program. I think never mind any sort of quotes that are writing you off. I, I don't know. I could definitely see the value of it. I can hear that song as well and think, geez, I would like you know. You, you probably remember songs you played in the dressing room that maybe accompanied a manager speech or something like that. And it I remember, does. I remember a lot of lads used to play that Eminem, "Lose Yourself in the Music." You know, you're getting ready for battle and all that kind of yeah. ca- carry on. I remember that being a little bit of a. Uh, you know, of a thing uh, players listen to. But Florence and the Machine, this is a new one of me, you got the love. Somebody <laughs> had Jerry Cinnamon on for our game before Bally Bowden this year when I think got hammered. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't uh, did Liam Griffin play Braveheart before the uh, 96 final, I think, for Wexford, as far as I know. <laughs> and I, I, and I, yeah, and I think he might have stopped it before the end. Spoiler alert for William it's Wallace, the maker. Yeah, I think so, yeah. But like, did, do you know, one thing I was glad of, Willie, was that uh, somebody has a story to tell that doesn't involve the inches speech from any given Sunday. Yeah, yeah. While it seemed like 99% of teams were using that. Well, Armagh, of course, made that one famous. They listened, They went on record saying that they listened to that in 2002. And then every match we used to go to under Mick O'Dwyer, we used to li- that 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 uh, speech would be playing on the bus. So it's like, oh my God, get a little bit of originality. But anyways, listen, lads, we'll leave it there for part one and we'll be back in a second. And in the meantime, you can enjoy a bit of Florence. Sometimes I feel like throw my hands up in the air. I know I can count on you. Sometimes I feel like saying, Lord, I just don't care. But you've got the love I need to see me through. Sometimes it seems the moment is just too rough. And things go wrong no matter what I do. Now and then it seems like life is just too much. But you've got the love I need to see me through. When food is gone. All right, so the news broke this week that Johnny Glenn got the coronavirus um, over in New York. And it was funny because I texted him last week. Um, asking him to come on the show because we know how bad the situation is in New York and kind of his name um, jumped into my head and he didn't reply back. And then I read that this week and I texted him and apologised and said, look, I really didn't know you had it or whatever. He says, no problem, grand. He's back normal again. But he was on the Long Haul podcast um, recently and he said there was one, this is just pure Johnny Glynn summarizing what the coronavirus is like. Nobody else could could describe it like Johnny Glenn. There was one night, this is Johnny Glenn speaking now, there was one night I woke up at two in the morning and it felt like I was after getting hit with a sledge in the middle of my back. So that's it. If anybody wants to know what it's like, it's like a sledge in the middle of your back. And uh, he said that was the main symptom he had. But he's back all right um, now again. So like, I mean, I suppose there'd be more cases of this 
different players getting it. Not too many so far. Has there been Connor? No, not not that I've seen. I suppose, and then maybe like GA players uh, mightn't be the most uh, at at risk category compared to compared to some others. But it was just when I heard um, I was reading Johnny Glynn describe his symptoms there on. And I was listening to it in the voice that you interviewed him. I think it was the morning after Galway won the All Ireland. Oh, yeah. It was just pure, pure classic Johnny Glenn saying he could walk, he could barely walk to the toilet. It was just like, like as a kind of side note to that as well. It was just interesting to hear him say that his his Galway career could be over. He thinks that he he's he's only twenty six and he said he's nearly drawn the line. Now that's not because of, of the coronavirus. Just the more that he's likely to remain in New York for the time being. But it was just uh, considering he is such a character and such a brilliant player, it'd be a shame that. Uh, that it might be the last we've seen of him in a Galway jersey. Yeah, no, definitely. One other hurler that got the coronavirus is our very own Michael Carton, uh, and he joins us on the line now. How are you feeling now, Michael? Hey, Oli, it's great to be back. Back <laughs> to a bit of normality. Thank God. Yeah. Took a while. And, and how, how long did it take in, t- in total, I suppose, from start to finish? Oh, for about two and a half weeks, because when he starts showing the symptoms, I suppose mine started with a headache and and then I started getting sore on my arms and legs and like sort of like flu-like symptoms. But I had no sore throat or anything, so I didn't think too much of it. But then after about four days, the headaches were getting worse in particular. And then I started getting a bit of a temperature, so I got tested and tested positive. So like before you even test positive, you have it four days, five days maybe. So right. it's a long enough ill process. Right, okay. And like, I mean, what happened then when you, when, like, how did you end up testing positive? Did you go through a drive through How did you get the test? How did that happen? Yeah, well, with work, we have, like, it's Corporate Health Ireland, it's called, and they, we have to get in contact with them because obviously you don't want to be going in on the fire truck or ambulance if you think you have any symptoms. So I got in contact with them and they told me to drive to Navin Hospital because it goes through where you live and I live in Mead. So, uh, they asked me could I be in Navin Hospital within the hour so I said absolutely so I drove over and <laughs> you sit out in the car park and a team come out with about five people all gowned up and take you back take you in from the car so a little embarrassing but um, had to be done and I, I, at that stage I wasn't too sure if I would test positive or not but yeah. I had the results in 24 hours because I suppose it happened to me early enough so I didn't have to wait too long and 24 hours later they rang me and said you tested positive and the right. ambulance on the way. <laughs> Jeez, and, and so they send an ambulance. Send an amb- so I suppose in a way you were lucky that you were so early in the whole thing that there was a hospital bed for you. The, the test only took 24 hours. The people right now are yeah. experiencing a different situation altogether. Yeah, she's speaking to lads now. They're waiting a week, like seven, eight days, even longer. And by that stage, you're, you're self-isolating and you're, you're at home. And I suppose once you start showing the symptoms... They want you being 14 days, and on the 14 day, you're symptom free. They're, they're giving you the all clear. But because I was so early on, yeah, they sent an ambulance, and I was, I would, I would have stayed at home to be honest. But they sent an ambulance, and I was, I was pretty lucky, I think, because I got sicker then, and I probably would have ended up in hospital anyway. Right. To be honest. So how sick so did you I, get? I, I caught a bad dose. Like how bad did it get? Uh, for me, I couldn't go to bed. I was constantly nauseous, headaches, uh, couldn't stop shaking with the temperature. And they, like they were all, uh, you feel miserable with that, but my chest x-ray was was quite bad. Like they said, it was quite vicious and I had a bad infection in my lungs, which I didn't know because I had no cough and I had no shortness of breath, but my, my oxygen levels were very low and they couldn't get them up for, say, five days, four or five days. And that was with me being on oxygen in the hospital. So 
Right. Um, I think that, that was the main concern for them. So I went through about six days in the hospital where I felt really bad. I couldn't get out of the hospital, couldn't get out of bed and couldn't move. And, and then I'd say on the seventh day then I, t- I turned a corner and my oxygen levels came up and um, it started improving from there. Right. And what's what's your appetite like with it? Like, I mean, can you eat or are you losing weight badly or? Uh, I, I never lost like a sense of my taste or smell, but I, I couldn't eat because I was so nauseous. So right. I was lying in bed and they come in with the food and then they take away the food an hour later and I, I didn't touch anything for five days. Jesus. It was the worst diet I've ever been on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, yeah, so about five days solid, I, I, I couldn't physically eat. It just I felt so sick. And, and they're giving you medication in there. And because you've nothing in your stomach, it's, it's very hard to say, like some of the medication is rough enough to take. And you know they'd say they want you eating something while taking this medication, but I couldn't do that because I was so nauseous. So um, I just for five days really, I just lay there taking whatever medication they could give me and trying to keep it down. Right. I, I knew then, I knew myself, I knew myself one morning I woke up and I was hungry. And I was like, oh God, that's the first time I've been hungry in six days, six, seven days. Right. So like, I, mean, I couldn't wait for the toast to come in. <laughs> <laughs> so like, I mean, you're sitting in hospital, uh, no family can, can, can come and visit you. You're desperately sick. Like, I mean, what are you, is thoughts going through your head about of dying in there? Yeah, well, not dying, but it's more frightening to think, like, if it does get worse, it, it would be awful. It would be such a lonely place to be because nobody can come see you. Like, your family, if it does get that way, your family can't say goodbye unless it's over the phone or on the other side of a door. Yeah. They can't come in and there'll be no contact that way. And you sort of say to yourself, you wish some people would think about that before they go out in, in big gatherings and... Because it's an awful way, it would be an awful way to go not being able to say goodbye to your family. So obviously you have nothing but time to think in there. So you're making all these, I'm going to be fitter than ever now when I leave and <laughs> I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that because that's all you can do when you're in there. Um, so it was great then to finally turn the corner but that's one thing people have to remember. Like just If it does happen to a family member, it's quite a tough place to be if you're going to get sick and, and, and go to ICU or something because you can't see them, you can't visit them. Yeah. And are there other cases around you in hospital, like in, you know, in, in pain or I suppose you were early in the in the timeline? Yeah, well, see, because you're isolated here, I was brought into sort of the basement of the matter. <laughs> you're brought straight into an isolation room, so you don't see any other patients. Right. And it's only through talking to the nurses, they said that the ward was full and it was full of a lot of mid-30 uh, age group like you, you don't get to see the patients because you're in the into, obviously inside your room you're not allowed to leave for them two weeks or whatever you're in there but it's just through speaking to the nurse they said yeah so many like mid-30s men and women in there and and they're struggling like you know so like the, the myth out there that's only the elderly are sick like none of us had underlying conditions who were in there at the time so um, that, that's one of the frightening things right that, and that age hospital- could be affected and yeah, not be sick. Were all the hospital staff wearing the protective gear? Because we know there was a sh- there's a shortage of that at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. But the ward I was in in the matter was only for coronavirus cases. So any nurses or doctors or catering staff that come near you are all fully gowned up. They come in, do their tests, and then leave. So it's a little bit surreal. It doesn't really even feel like real contact because from head to toe they're in protective gear, which they obviously have to be in. And um, 
so for that minimal contact you get through the day, it's uh, they're in and out pretty quick when they have their test done, which you'd expect because it's such a hazardous environment. So um, it's a very tough place to work for the staff. Yeah, definitely because yeah. they're putting themselves at risk every time they come into the room with a patient. So um, yeah, they're fully gowned up and then leave and get and wash up and leave. And if they've been every single time they come into it, they've been everything they're wearing. So you can see why they're going so, through so much gear, so much equipment. All right, like I mean, really, even when they leave your room to go into another one, they need full full new gear. So, yeah, so head to toe visors, masks, goggles, uh, full apron, two pairs of gloves, all have to be bent every time they come into me, and then they put them on for the next patient. And that's yeah. for a nurse or doctor. And sometimes you could have two people in the room with you. Jeez, I didn't realize that. But like the other patient would have it as well. So it, like, I don't want to make light. Yeah, so like imagine. I think at the time there was fourteen to eighteen people on the ward I was on. So like that's every time a nurse or doctor is doing around, they're going into them patients and then robing up and then binning everything and then doing it all over again. So you can see why you're flying through the equipment, not only yeah. on one ward. Wow. Jeez, I didn't realise that. So, that's, great. that's mad, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's incredible the amount of resources you need just, just to keep the place running. Come here, one thing I was wondering about is when you get the test results back, when do you do the tracing? You probably Were you too sick to do the tracing at the start or do you do the tracing when you start feeling better? And how hard is it to remember you know, back to 14 days or whatever, they tried to go back. Yeah, so they left me, so like, I went in the hospital on the Saturday day, I got into hospital at 11 o'clock at night. Um, I was quite sick then for a day or two. They rang me two days later, a public health doctor, and just said, look, we're going to do the tracing, but could you, we'll ring back in, say, three hours. Could you do a list of everyone you've been in contact with for the last two weeks? And... So I sat there in the bed and did did my list. And I, I, I wasn't too many places in the two weeks, so I think I got nearly everywhere. And then they got in contact, they got in contact with everyone I mentioned. And right. then they were isolating for two weeks. I, I was with all my family and all Kira's all family for that week. I was sick, so I was very... That was my main concern in the hospital for the first six days, just saying, oh, God, I hope. Like if, it does, if, it, if, this, if I'm this bad, I hope my mum and dad or her mum and dad didn't get it. Yeah. And did anyone all get it? Here, all my brothers and family. No one. Absolutely no one. Right. Um, so that was blessed. When I say no one, would be all isolated for the two weeks, but some of them could have had it and just not been symptomatic. I get you. That, I that's get you. happened. Yeah. Um, but because they all isolated for the two weeks and none of them, none of them had any symptoms, so uh, I was delighted then after that because it, it can take a few days to show up. Well, I'm sure that's, so, I'm sure that's staying, a big... Staying in contact. Yeah, that's a big worry is the guilt of maybe having given it to somebody else. Oh, absolutely. And like my mum and dad would have some underlying conditions, you know, and you're, you're saying to yourself, oh my God, I hope I haven't infected anyone I know, you know. So you're, every day they're ringing, I'm like, how are you feeling? Like they were just, how are you feeling? But I was just so concerned about how they weren't showing up with any coughs or, yeah. or anything Claire, like that. You... Thank God none of them did. Have you any idea where you got it or anything? No, it's just could have been no anything. idea. Absolutely, yeah. nobody, n- nobody in work has it. No, none of my friends or family. So I've, I've no idea where it got. I haven't even heard of anyone that I know that has it. You know, so um, I've no idea where it came in contact with it. Really. Right, right. And did it? You did. So, like, go on. 
No, like my, my I suppose that Sunday before I started feeling symptoms, I went down to my local pub. <laughs> I had two points to watch a Man United match, and I came home, and the next morning I had the worst. I was right, I was a hangover. <laughs> I was getting a bit of stick off, off ourselves at home, saying, "How old are you now? Two points and you're dying." <laughs> but then <laughs> the headache, the headache lasted for another two or three days, and then I said, "Oh no, it's definitely not because of that." You know, so um. That's 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 where I suppose where it started, you know, that first day. But and again, I've been in contact with everyone that I know, and no one, no one has it. So, right, Astro could have been anywhere. It could have been in the supermarket, off something you touched, and not washing exactly. your hands, all exactly. that kind of thing. Like I mean, wherever in the yeah. yeah. Did, did you get a retest to be sure it's gone, or did the doctors tell you that you're immune to it now, or any kind of information like that? No, initially in the hospital they wanted me to test negative twice before leaving, but I did a test. And it took four days to come back. And But when I did the test during the week, I was really sick. And then four days later, I wasn't sick at all. And it came back positive still. And so they changed that. They changed the protocol to once I was 14 days and I was symptom-free on the 14th day, I was good to go. So I never actually got tested negative. And I never tested negative because I think the tests were taking so long to get back. They just stopped stopped doing that and went through the protocol. Then I've been to fourteen days symptom free, and then once they told me I was allowed to leave, of course my first question was, "Am I am I immune now?" And the doctor, pretty honestly, uh, just said, "I don't, I don't know," because right. it's it's such a new virus that um, they don't know enough about it to tell you that you should have built up the antibodies to fight it, but they don't know enough about it to say that you're definitely immune. And right. I just have to be careful because I can still definitely be a carrier. So you can still bring it home if I've got it on my hands or again, you know. So you just have to be as careful as everyone else. Yeah, um, in, the, in, the future. in the future. So uh, they, uh, they, they don't know, know enough to tell you or me or not. Right, oh, okay. <laughs> Doctors never commit to anything. No, exactly. They're, they're cute, they're cute, cute horse. Yeah. One, of, one of my doctors in there is actually an ex-sayer. I stayed with Dublin with me greatly, so it was great to have a familiar face come in and have a chat to you. Know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I exactly. didn't know until I went in that that, that was going to be one that used one of the doctors, but it was great to have a familiar face in there. So, come here, are you, are you strong enough to go back doing a bit of running? Or are you doing a bit of training or anything like that? Or, like, I mean, have, I, how, how much weight Yesterday was the first bit. Yesterday was the first bit I did out in the garden, but and I was gassed after, after 10 minutes. But... Uh, I think it's going to take a while. They think they say six to eight weeks. I still have a slight bit of a cough and get the odd headache, but I think it's like six to eight weeks before it might clear your system. So I definitely, my legs were like jelly for the first two weeks. So yesterday was the first day I thought to myself, well, I'll do a bit here. And I couldn't do too much, to be honest. But I went back to work last weekend and that was great to get back. And I was on the ambulance straight away then. So, now, I was on the other side of it I was getting all the gowned up and face masks going into other people's houses so um, well, you, you know what they're, they're going through the fear now because I've been through it so it does help yeah definitely does come here Michael thanks very much I won't keep you any longer thanks for sharing all that stuff with us well, no problem at all it's great to talk to you good stuff for Michael there lads It's like I can only imagine being in a hospital bed being sicker than you've ever been in your whole life 
being completely on your own, no family. You know, if you get a flu in a really high temperature, you need a little bit of kind of reassurance you're going to be all right from your mother usually. Like I'm thinking back to when I was really sick, it's always my mother looking after you. You're completely on your own. You're in a hotel or you're in a hospital room. Nurses come in um, almost like they're in outer space with covers and everything. And they spend, you know, as little time in there as you can. And you, all these kind of thoughts going through your head, you can't see anybody you know, Conan. Like, I mean, it's absolutely horrific. And the scary thing about it is there's old people dying in that scenario. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we did a, a video with uh, Irish rugby women's player, Claire McLaughlin. She's a doctor in Belfast. And she was going on about, like, part of her shift is being a bouncer, basically, at the door, where if somebody has symptoms of coronavirus, and they have to go in themselves and the family have to stay away. And she said, like, sometimes you're telling people this could be the last time you see them like you know because they're going to be in in bed themselves being sick yeah. themselves and you can't come in and visit them it's it's absolutely horrific like um and just like it's, it's actually it's, it's good to hear johnny glenn sort of give that little description as well because marion mcginnis used to play of armada ladies he was talking about waking up and feeling really sore and tired as if she just played a, a big match the day before you know and having those aches and stuff like that it's it's a really scary time especially i'd say for johnny then who's who's out in america as well which is obviously a lot more severe yeah, when you kind of be on your own away from family as well. But the question I, I'm always curious about, and I know, Connor, you're not going to have the answer to this, but <laughs> like, I mean, the idea that somebody would die without any family members near them, could the family member not just use some of the protective equipment in the hospital, go in and hold their mother or father's hand while they pass away rather than, like, I mean, if nurses can go in and doctors like, I'm sure you could sign the consent form and say, look, I'm wearing the prote- I'm going to wear the protective gear. If I get it, I'm going to I'm going to take that risk and go in and hold their hand. I think it's inhumane what's happening to people dying without anybody being in there with them. You'd like to think that it, like that something like that could happen, because like just the, the, some of the stories that. So some of the stories that are coming out of it, coming out of this whole thing are absolutely heartbreaking, whether it's, you know, people that people who have close relatives, mothers and fathers and friends that have died, they can't go to the funeral. Only a few people can attend funeral. Like Michael said, being in hospital there for a couple of weeks. I mean, like Michael recovered and he's a young person. But as you said earlier on, if you're an older person and the, the fear and the anxiety that that, that, that that would strike in you, you know, just have, having to wait on your own and not being able to talk about, you know, talk to a family or or, or just confide in a friend or something like that. And and like, I think it's, it's important to hear those stories as well, because I think we're in danger of becoming immune to the figures that come out every day. I mean, it's just it's just accepted as a matter of fact now when you hear that there was 40 deaths or something like that and hundreds more confirmed cases and we've just kind of we just come to accept it as part of the daily news cycle whereas whereas a story like that uh, and and even michael's experience just reminds you of the 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 mechanics and how 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 horrible this virus can be for for the people who are suffering and and for their immediate family and friends as well yeah no definitely but I, i definitely think something needs to be done about the people dying alone when there's protective gear and if it's okay for nurses to go in, how can a, a, a child of an elderly person not go in, you know, using gloves and the screen and all that? I don't get it. But anyways, let's um, the Connor, Connor McKeown had it in the in the Herald that Conal Keeney and Stephen Cluxon are set to play this year. That's, of course, if there's ever is a championship this year. Cluxon's 39 this year. So if there's no G in this year, you know, they, these lads could actually end up retiring on a year where they didn't really even play. But Cluxton will be 40 next year. He's 39 this year. But it's incredible that they're that they're committing again. And we know Stephen Cluxton's a bit of a freak, but let's be honest, he's a goalkeeper. And goalkeepers don't run all that much. And we know Cluxton is, a, is an unusual goalkeeper in that he has himself in the kind of shape 
you know, a lot of outfield players um, have. They're both on the go since 2001. They started a week apart. So for context with Cluxton, Ross Munley and Niall McNamee are the closest to him. They started in 2003. They're both outfield players. McNamee's still on the team. Munley's on and off. Um, McNamee's still on the Division 3 team. Um, Munley is um, on and off uh, the leash team. David Clark, we know, started in a setup in 2001. He didn't make his debut until 2005. So he doesn't really seem to be kind of thrown into that same same list. But the context for Conal Keeney, I find incredible. Conal Keeney... Um, the next oldest to Conal Keeney is Anthony Nash, who's 36. Um, he's two years younger. Keeney's 38. After that, it's Alan Nolan, who's 35. Nash and Nolan, obviously, are goalkeepers. The, the closest outfield player is Owen Cadigan, who's 34. So Keeney's 38. Um, Cadigan started in 2007. Keeney started in 2001, right? Um, Waterford's Kevin Moran. So Kevin Moran, like, is 33, like, you know, it feels like he's around forever and is a real stalwart. He started in the summer of 06. Conal Keeney started in 2001. 2001. <laughs> and he's still playing outfield for Dublin. And in last year's championship, he was their outstanding forward. It's, he's a freak of nature, Conal Keeney. He's another one of our own here on the GER. The sooner he finishes up, we, we'll be able to get him back. But that's, Conan, that's freakish stuff um, from both of them. But I would say more so Conal Keeney. It's phenomenal, like, and uh, probably more so Conal Keeney in different levels because, like, performance-wise, obviously, like, yeah, you're outfield, you're taking hits, you're you're trying to get your body yeah. to be able to play senior hurling every week. But then, like, we talked before, like, you talked about how how Cluxton's life is set up perfectly because he's a primary school teacher and he can go down to training early. But I think that's the hardest thing for going that long is committing to all that training and all the studying the tapes and the text messages and eating right and like you're just living your life to be ready for a game on a Sunday. I, I just I can't get my head around how you could be doing that from two thousand and one. It's it's stupid stuff to be honest. Like, and like, the fact that these two are doing it at the highest level is just uh, I don't know. I can't, I'm actually speechless about it. Just one, thing to, just one thing to say on Conal Keeney as well, Wooly, is that like the, the, some of the players you mentioned there, you know, Ross Munley, Niall McNamee, kind of corner forwards, more slip of fellas that, that mightn't be getting involved in the thick of the action. The one the one word that comes to mind for me for Conal Keeney would be that he's a warrior. So he, like, he's constantly taking belts. He's constantly kind of getting involved in, you know, he's like getting involved in like the physical aspect of the game. And not only that, he's played inter-county football for Dublin, inter-county hurling for Dublin. Uh, both codes at club level and with both his hurt with Ballyboden at hurling and football has had, you know, huge long campaigns that have stretched into the winter and through Christmas, you know, like in both codes. So for that amount of durability and that like he's, he's had a few, a fair few injuries as well and pretty serious crash at one stage of his career as well. So for that durability and to be still playing at the age he is, I think is, is, is absolutely astounding. Yeah. yeah I'd say it's, a, it's a good year though to commit because you're only going to have a few weeks of training. <laughs> yeah. Lads could be coming out of retirement, but I always remember Colin Keeney, like he's such a competitive, is that and you know he's a competitor I've played against him and he's not he's not he's not on the field to make friends he's on the field to win you know and I like those kind of attitudes but I remember remember we did that thing on Sports Show Live with the how hard uh, kicking the ball and he did it one time and we're across doing it and he kicks it a couple of times. He's just wearing runners and he wasn't happy with, his result, with his, the result. And he says, here, I've got Astroturf boots in my car. Will you give me another go with them? So he goes sprinting like, like a young lad going off to get his boots. He goes running out of the place we were doing it, sprinting off to his car, lands back out of breath, 
with the with the better better shoes and absolutely rockets it into the net like gets a record from it like you know I just thought it was it was funny just a joke game he was like okay I can actually do better than this if I have decent if I have decent runners on me that's amazing like this, just the enthusiasm for that and the confidence you know that he could do better as well so yeah. he went sort of another thing in that piece Conan I couldn't believe was Stephen Cluxton like I mean I know you're obsessed with players that didn't play a minor in 1999 Cluxton um, was with the Dublin Miners. He was third choice behind Vinnie Galvin and Aina O'Reilly. He was third choice goalkeeper for the Miners in 1999. This is incredible stuff. How was he goalkeeper on your on your team that never played minor? He better have been. <laughs> I don't know if he was. Uh, maybe, but maybe, maybe he was minor again the next year or something. I, I'd be surprised if he never played it. But that in 1999, anyway, he was third choice, and he was obviously. Um, uh, second choice behind Davy Byrne until uh, for a couple of years as well. You know, I was obsessed with these players uh, who never played minor for about ten years until I finally gave up on my dream of playing at the county level. So I was, I was always <laughs> kidding myself. It's like, look, Bernard Brogan didn't do maybe. Right. They call something. Okay, but... so it was a selfish motivation behind this. Jeremy <laughs> Murphy from Kerry, who was in goals. So that's not a bad one either. But Coxon would have been better, all right. Yeah, no, he definitely would. Oshie McConville, right? So we did the Armagh 2002 win. Was it me and you, Connor, or Conan? I can't That's remember. It, that one with you, yeah. Yeah, you did that one with me. And we were talking about Oshin missing the penalty before half time and how devastated he looked and putting his hands up to his head and stuff like that. And he was talking about it in the Irish News um, this week. Um, and he said, I wasn't able to brush it off fairly quickly. And before I read the quote, we were saying this, that it was unusual to see a player look so devastated, uh, you know, with the sports psychology of brushing it off. And McConville said, no, I w-, he was asked about this anyways. And he said, no, I wasn't able to brush it off fairly quickly. I was glad I got to half time. I remember nobody really said anything to me. The only person that did was Ronan Clark, slapped me on the back of my head and said, you'll get a goal in the second half. Um, and he was only 19 at the time. He said, a few boys came over and hit me on the top of the head or slapped me on the back. They didn't say a whole lot. There wasn't a lot to be said about the penalty. People just presumed I'd deal with it myself. And I suppose before going on any further, that is kind of how people deal with it. Like, I mean, you're not going to gather around and say, like, lads have more important things to worry than consoling a fellow who missed the penalty. In, in a lot of ways, the teammates would probably be half tick with him anyways that he, that he missed it. And he's bit, like, I don't, I've never seen a dressing room where something like that is dealt with. Um, I don't know about either of the other than the player just having to suck it up and go out in the second half. No, exactly. And like at that stage, Oshie McConville is how long in the Armad team at that stage, one of their main forwards. Like, you know, they'd like they 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 would have trusted him at that stage to to be able to get over it, to be able to deal with himself. And obviously he did. But I just, I just thought that was brilliant by um by Ronan Clark, considering that he's only nineteen at the time. We gladly gave him I think we awarded him man of the match fully for the for for his contribution, like on the field. And just to have that kind of um you know, it, like I I think if, if Oshie McConville was telling that story and he said that oh Kieran McGinney came up to me at half time slapped me in the back of the head you know and told me I'd get a goal in the second half a far bigger deal would have been made of it and so like for Ronan Clark to, to be able to do that as well as like you know deliver a performance that should have got him man the match in the day I think I, I think says a lot about him but um, but yeah he, like Oshin did he did he, he dressed himself down he he hadn't had a good like I think he got man the match in the end even though he didn't have a great uh, first half and wasn't really in it until he got the goal in the second half but uh, but that's like they were obviously just right to trust him to kind of get over it himself yeah no and he was well able to get over it but I thought the another, another interesting thing he said was that we had two uh, sports psychologist. I'm not going to name them now, but there were sports psychologists back in 2002. Um, 
he said, with us at the time. And they told me to go out after half time, take a ball with me and stick it into the net at Hill 16. I said, right. As I was running down the tunnel with the ball, I thought, this is going to look fucking stupid. So when I came out, I just wellied the ball as far as I could down the field. Maybe that's what um, it was about. Just one way of letting it out of my system. And it just like, I mean, these were sports psychologists back a long time ago, but it was a very gimmicky kind of stuff back then. Like, I mean, this is an all-earned final. You've just missed a penalty. Really, really, is this going to change anything in your head by kicking the ball into an empty net at the hill, Conor? Like that, for me, I think sports psychology back then was, 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 had a lot of kind of gimmicks like that. Yeah, and I suppose you're probably a lot uh, more false prophets. Not that they were, but like, you know, there's a lot, maybe not as accredited as you have to be nowadays to work with a county team. But uh, to be honest, I could see, like, I could see the value in it as well. Just seeing the net rippling, like where he might start seeing the goals a bit smaller, the goalkeeper standing in his way. You know, it might just there might be a mental block there. He didn't need it, obviously, so it probably is a bit of a bullshit attached to it. But yeah. even the fact that he he saw the value in getting something out of his system, and that even all these years later, he still he was still sort of hung up on missing that penalty. And it's it's like every best performance you see, people make a mistake in the game, and but they don't let it consume them. Like, and they know that these little things they aren't the winning and losing of a match. Like, it's the overall seventy minutes, and like that that's the important thing. And whatever way you can get to that. I think that's where the psychology comes in. Maybe it's not kicking the ball into an empty net. Yeah. Well, you see, this is the reason I'm kind of thinking of this. And I've told this story on the show before. It was 2005 or 2006. And Dublin had uh, just hammered us in a Leinster semi-final. And we had a sports psychologist with us that was apparently was uh, highly rated at the time. And he was with the Cork Hurlers and stuff like that. And he came up and he got us in the dressing room before we went out training on the Tuesday night after the hammering. And he told us to write out, down all the things we thought was wrong about the performance and the preparation and all that. So, like, I mean, we all got a pen and a piece of paper each. And I was scribbling down, absolutely attacking the management. I was on the bench. They, wouldn't, they, weren't, they, weren't, they weren't picking me. So I had no shortage of material. The whole thing's a joke, I was saying. They were all, you know, whatever. And uh, so then he told us to put all our negative feelings and thoughts into a into a, a bucket in the middle of the dressing room. So it, all this was the, the negative stuff and we put all that into the bucket and then he picked up the bucket and we said, follow me. So we all followed him and he walked out into the middle of the pitch in a moor park and put the bucket on the ground and set all the pieces of paper on fire in it. So we had a little uh, fire of all the negativity and now we were going to focus and, and work forward from that. Now, ah, look, on a very, very basic level, you can see where it's coming from, but we were giggling kind of like, I remember, you know, when my attitude was all wrong that year, but I, I don't know. I just thought, again, that was a little bit gimmicky as well. So no, did nobody get to read that then, Wally? So all nobody the, got to read it. No, and I was hoping that these were anonymous because we were told not to put our names to it. So I was like, "Oh, lovely! I'm really going to town on this feedback now." And like, I mean, this was just all the negativity was to be put away and burned. But isn't it interesting? Like, yeah, it's the gimmicks that are all wrong. Like, and they're the things that you remember, and they're the things that are obviously the worst. Like, if you went to a psychologist about your mental health, like they wouldn't give you a line and say, right, so where you go now, you're going to be granted. It's like not to sound like Jim Gavin, but like when you listen to Declan Dursley speaking, when you chatted to him, it was all about a process and stuff which is done over time and it started becoming natural into their into their way of thinking. Like, you know, you can't just yeah. set up how things on fire. You were probably thinking, I made a lot of good points there. Did I want yeah, to yeah. No, but, but this was the thing. If I was the manager, I would be like, this is like gold dust. I'm going to read every single one of these mm. and I'm going to learn from it because player feedback is very important. And if there was a common theme yeah. amongst all 30 of 
of them. Well, that's definitely feedback. They just burned all this information. Like, I mean, like if, if you were to tell Jim Gavin that I'm going to give you all this really good information from the players and go out and burn it, he'd be like, are you off your head? I want that information. <laughs> did it have any sort of desired effect what happened next oh no we got a run in the qualifiers and like i mean but like i mean i think this is completely independent of this like, I, like of course like you know like i mean i don't know we got a run in the qualifier we actually beat tyrone next to home in port leash would you believe well, it worked. <laughs> what can you say <laughs> maybe the gimmick worked maybe the gimmick worked yeah i never actually thought about all of my criticisms what happened next um <laughs> Yeah, just on that on that uh, topic, um, I missed that Caroline uh, Curid is back with the Limerick Hurlers for 2020. Um, see, she wouldn't be into gimmicks like that, you know. Like she's, I think sports psychology has moved on. I I'd say she would call herself more as a performance consultant. Like, and she will like Paula Connell had her, and he's not burning negative thoughts or anything like that, or he's not kicking, he's not kicking a, a conversion in front of the goals to tell him he can kick conversions, like. It's about preparing properly, the mental and the actual, like, you know, time in your day, separating it, having a life outside of the sport, you know, organizing your life, understanding the value of what you're doing. You know, like, th th I think sports psychology has moved away from that potentially gimmicky stuff back then to more practical stuff. Like, I would be more interested in what she would be able to do you know, rather than some of the lads that were, then again, look, we're nearly 20 years on and it's all evolving, Connor. Yeah, like, there definitely is a, a lot of value. And I remember an interview of Kevin McMenamin, obviously he's he's big into it and he made a really good point. Like, you know, when you talk about the teams who win championships, you, we're never really talking about them being stronger or fitter. Very, like, very little times that we do that. We talk about how they manage to cope under pressure. We always talk about Dublin coming back from adversity, you know, and, and continuing to go. Like, and again, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a gimmick that lets that happen like you know it's 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 a process over time and like it obviously has evolved over time to get to that stage where it's you know people who are working with them day in day out the same way as strength and conditioning coach would do it like even if, if you do like I think there's a lot of mental strength involved in strength and conditioning I think Mikko would always say that's what he did the run for with Leash and with Kildare yeah, yeah. and stuff mm -hmm. it's just and like you know yourself like you know if you're out doing a long run in your head you're, you're thinking I need to stop here when in reality, you could probably go on for an hour, three or four K. Like, yeah. But the fitter you get, then the more mentally strong you get as well. So it all works in tandem. Yeah, no, it definitely does. There's loads of different strands to it. Boys, I want to finish up with this one because um, I was tweeting about this. The, the GA Joe was tweeting about the the worst mm. football drill ever in Gaelic, Gaelic football. This is more of a Gaelic football one because I couldn't imagine it transferring to hurling. But it's the square. It's the two lads in the middle of the square and four lads outside it. And you have to pass to the four lads outside it while being, let's be honest, absolutely mauled by a fella inside because there's absolutely no policing or no tack, no proper tackling. It's just anything goes in there and you're allowed to get absolutely destroyed in there. And depending how cruel the manager is, this could last 30 seconds. It could last 45 seconds. It could last a minute. Generally, the, the groups are split into four or five different groups. So the manager will take a wonder. So you're able to kind of watch him out of the corner of your eye and see has he gone to another group. And at least you can calm, calm down a little bit on it then. But it's an absolute torturous drill that nobody, nobody likes outside of maybe a real dogging corner back on and that might be in his element. 
Yeah, you call it the square. I think it's the the square of death is what it should be called. Like it's um, it's thankless. Like and it's basically like you do it a lot over preseason. Like so, on a boggy ground and you're slipping everywhere. And as you say, there's no. It's, it's not even that there's no policing. It's that the defender is encouraged to just hammer him. Like that's, yeah, that's yeah. what they want to see. And that's that's the positive reinforcement you hear. Then it's like good lad, like get stuck onto him, and you're just being pelted. The person who's the worst though in this drill is not the defender. It's the person who wins the ball and gives it straight back to the person who got the ball off. Like it's just cheating. You're supposed to try and take it past them and get it to another player who's free. But yeah, that that's always a real sticking for the defender. But yeah. I don't know. Um, I don't know what he, I I think I told the story before, but Jim McGuinness took our club for training once. It was it was the year before he uh, took over Donegal, and he extended that square to about thirty meters by thirty meters. So there was about five or six, you know, pairs in the middle, right? And then everybody else was on the outside. So he won the ball, you had to pop it off to somebody else. But he extended the length of time to three minutes. Oh, right? God. So as well as that, if you were spotted fouling, if you were spotted fouling, there was a punishment at the end. So he'd count up the number of fouls that he counted. And of course, after 45 seconds, people are just absolutely shattered. They're fouling left, right and center. So at the end of it, after three minutes of torture, he calls us in and he goes, well, I spotted six fouls there, the 10 push-ups per foul. So we had to do sixty push-ups at the end of it. Then, so it's it's the it's by far the most uh, excruciating experience I've ever had in the training pit. Jesus, I think all the worst or the least favourite uh, football drills were involving hand passing. Mm. Like, I mean, is that truck and trailer stupid one that put my head in? Where <laughs> you you it's it's just it's complicated, and for me, it's completely like not practical for Gaelic football. It's just a complicated drill that. Like, I mean, I've done it at intermediate level and it took us like about 10 minutes to get it right. And then the manager was so happy that we eventually got it right. We did it for like another 15 minutes. <laughs> Go on, you have it now and you're flying at it. And it's like you passed it to someone running past you and you just run straight ahead to another cone and wait there. And you end up just, I suppose, following the person in front of you and never really looking past that cone. Yeah, that's actually that happens in a lot of drills. Like it's just like, where am I going? So you ask the person in front of you, where am I going? And you don't even worry about what's happening in the drill. Yeah, you yeah. Ball and you follow that person, and you ask the next person to come, where are we going? <laughs> like, you know, if managers can know that, but you're right, that's what happens in truck and trailer. As soon as they see a groove, it probably looks good on the outside. Yeah, they get all excited. They add in an extra ball, and then after ten minutes of doing that, they tell you we're going to go the other way. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's the exact same drill. No, it is. the other one is the the three man weave, Connor. Like, I mean, this is like one of the most famous ones all over the country. And to be honest, it's pointless, the three-man weave. It's another silly one that doesn't really relate to a, a, a match situation. Other than managers just do it. It seems like it's a warm-up thing and you're going across and it's all grand and you pan pass it off. I always wondered about the three-man weave, why managers wouldn't do it, say, with the full back line on the, on the end line in their positions and say, now I want you doing the three-man weave and try and say, right, when we're breaking out with the ball, I want that support, you know, a bit of support play coming either side of the man and at least making the three-man weave in some way relevant to a game other than it just being a kind of a, a warm-up drill that is completely irrelevant. Yeah, I, 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 think, I think that's it. That this goes back to truck and trailer as well. I think the three-man weave, when it works as it's supposed to, looks good. You know, yeah. every, everybody's shouting their name. Everybody's kind of, you know, letting the man that has the ball before them know that they're, they're that they're there for the support run. But the the, the problem is, is that there's there's rarely any defenders butting the way. So it's it's not practical in terms of the game because when you have any amount of space in front of you, you can make any support any support run because there's there's nobody standing there. There's nobody going to get in your way. There's no tackles being put in, and that's but that's why the three that that three man weave is far different from 
the when you get three men attacking a goal with a couple of defenders, which obviously has practical implications and is obviously being put into practice because, you know, when people are kind of practicing goals and maybe palming it over the defender and palming it into the net. But that's, it all comes back to, it all comes back to what, like, I think managers get a big kick out of something that looks good. And it's nearly as if they think that if there was some invigilator and some analysis coming to look at training, they say, geez, look at them. They're all in motion. They're all doing the three men weave. They're all calling names. And that making things look good is important as practical implications on the pitch. Yeah. No, like, I mean, that's it. And like, you know, the big square kick pass. I always like kick passing drills. I didn't care what one it was because mm-hmm. you're at least you're kick passing and you're running a decent distance and you're getting well warmed up. And like the square where you receive a kick pass and you hand pass it to a lad running past you and then you go to his hand pass position and then you're the next one kicking it and it's a square. And then the manager will tell you to go the other way. So you're practicing both your left and right. I like that because there's actually you're improving as a footballer. You're getting fitter. You're using both feet and you're kicking 20, you know, 20 meters. Why can't all drills, Conan, not be nonsense like truck and trailer, three-man weave, that stupid square? Well, I can see the practicality of the square. It's just dogging you and getting you fit. But mm. like, it's very rare that you're going to be tackled like that for 30 seconds without releasing the ball or be, being fouled. You know, That's just a cruel one, the square, that square of death. But like, I mean, there, there are some of the kick-passing ones at least have, have value to them. But that, that kick pass when you're talking about the square, actually, that brings in the only really good element from the three-man weave and truck and trailer, which is the timing of the run off the shoulder and the angle of the run. So yeah. you can do that with the kick pass and square. You just have a man you're popping with it then. Like, because you can see when you do truck and trailer, sometimes it's valuable because a lot of lads are just 10 metres ahead of the ball and they're turning around to get it. And yeah. That's the one coaching point that you bring into it. Like, you know, time the run, get off the shoulder at the right time. You right. can do that with that kick pass and drill. They're like, one of the worst things that I hate and... It, you know, like that. I think that square, the square of death is valuable, but I hate it like because a couple of months down the line, then and you're training and boys are fouling, and then the manager starts suddenly saying, Stop fouling. You're like, Well, that's all we were doing in training. <laughs> but it's the one where you have to hand pass the ball five times before you can shoot or something like you know, oh, that's nonsense. That's yeah. again just another battering session, and then like you don't need to mark the man with the ball because he can't shoot, so you just go to everybody else and hold them. Like, you know, yeah, there's a I lot of feeling. I do find, you know, like the three ver- three forwards versus two defenders, and you see Dublin doing that an awful lot. But I find that gets so predictable that the defenders just drop off so far mm. that, you know, they know what's coming. Do you get me? Like, I mean, yeah. the defenders don't make an honest effort like they would in a game. They just know it's a three versus two. So they're just back and back and back and off, and they're not committing to the hand pass to let somebody through. Yeah, we've done a variation of that where the, the there's, there might be two defenders, but the first defender can't go like inside the 21, for example. So they can't drop off. They have yeah. to confront, say if the three forwards are running from maybe the 50 or, or beyond, that the first defender has to try and at least confront them around the 45 just to give them a decision to make and just to 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 ask the defender to commit as opposed to being happy to drop off. And then just a lot of defenders in, in those drills, if you, if you do it the way that you're talking about there, are just happy to concede a point because the whole... Yeah of the drill is, yeah. is is to try and score a goal but uh, one, one drill that I that, that that I want to mention that we that we've done that, that that I find kind of interesting is if you get um if you get like an underage goal post for example and you split split teams into two so you've you have forwards and backs on one side of the goal and forwards and backs on the other side of the goal and there's a d like a semicircle drawn around the like the goal from either side so you can oh, kick, yeah. kick points from either side and then 
you have to kick from outside the outside the D, let's say the semicircle. You get a point if you score, but if your teammate on the other side wins the ball cleanly, it's two points. And then you have to work it outside the D as well. So everybody's kind of doing something. Uh, you know, you're, you ideally you try to isolate your shooter to shoot outside the D, but other people can do it too. Defenders have to tackle and you're all in front of the goal trying to win the ball as well. So it's an enjoyable one. I have to say, I don't like that one, Connor. I don't want to uh, disagree with you. Like, I mean, whatever happened to backs and forwards? Does that? Does anyone do? Am I showing my age by saying, can we not have a good game of backs and forwards? Uh, you see, people are too clever now. Backs, like backs and forwards, shout for the backs because that is well, shout for the backs. Yeah, that's why how that's why it's great. Yeah, <laughs> like they're starting on the forty-five with no pressures. Like this never happens in a the game. They get no, the, they sure. get a free pass and then. As soon as you score, there's always some asshole who's lingering around or going to 45 just to get another ball and bring it straight back in. And yeah. you know, everybody's spread out. Like they need to, if you're going to do backs and forwards, it needs to go further out and there needs to well, be the, 10 yeah. seconds. Pressure on yeah, the ball. the ball the ball should come from a half back line or whatever. But one thing that re- used to absolutely do my head in about the backs and forwards was when a manager would just randomly say, "Right, switch it around now." The backs are playing. And I'm like, <laughs> "What are you talking about? What benefit is a corner back now playing corner forward?" Like, I mean, do you remember that going on? Like, we used to tear oh, yeah. my hair out. I used to just stop trying. I'd be like, "This is a joke. What are we doing here? What? What? Why are the backs now becoming forwards? What? What's the thought process on this?" And then. As it kind of evolved a little bit, at least the change to two kind of, you know, cones outside. So the backs actually had to work it out if they won it back. And I could live with that because at least we're practicing stopping them coming out. But the idea that the backs just automatically turn into forwards is absolutely <laughs> a, a, a outrageous thing to do. Yeah, but the drills only lasted for two minutes when the backs used to do because none of the forwards used to try anyway. So yeah. <laughs> it was to try and give us a break, but it never worked. Yeah, no, listen, it, it has. I remember one time we did a drill with Port Leash. I won't say who the management was. Um, we did a drill for with Port Leash for about 45 minutes. They were over talking and they started us off doing a drill. And it was, you know, that drill where half the team's down one end, half the other, other end. And there's one player standing in front of one group. You hand pass it to him. He hand pass it back. Then you kick it up to the other group. You know that one? And then you join the other group. It's like monotonous and it's fairly boring. At least there's kick passing and running in it, which I didn't mind. I'd say we did it for 45 minutes and they were over talking and we were getting tick. And every now and then they would shout over, go on, rise it up now. Come on, there's not much intensity now. And would you believe when we finished that drill? All right, lads, warm down there now. That was the training session. One poxy drill. I nearly should name, I should name them, but I've been critical enough of them in the past, so there's your clue. Uh, <laughs> right, listen, boys, we'll leave it there. You could talk about drills all day, actually. Um, there's so many stupid ones out there, but I think I'm getting a little bit old in that I haven't been around teams long enough to know if they've evolved or what the hell's going on or not now. So uh, maybe all the old stocks are still there, Colin. You're, you're still playing there. Are all the old stock drills still going, or is there all new ones? They're still going. Like you used to talk about three man weave there, but I actually think we've got a good variation of it now. Where it's like you have the you know the soccer things that they use for free kicks to sort of what do you call them? Yeah, the things that still, the still the yeah. statues like yeah, um, we have those sort of planted, and it's like four or five boys. You have to sort of just make those runs. Like it's not like a three man weave, but you have ah, to get you. those runs off the shoulder in between those those mannequins, and then just have a have a shot at goal. Like so, there's probably, there's probably a lot more sense. There's a lot more purpose. I find with the stuff that you're doing nowadays like you know right play, players are getting smarter i suppose and like I, I do love the idea of angled support runs mm. just not not in close proximity like the three man weave which makes yeah. anyways we're going to get back into the three man <laughs> we'll leave it there we'll be back on monday and we'll do a couple more nostalgia shows so we'll talk to you then good luck
And when I started running, I suppose I didn't stop. And when I got the chance to go, I said I'd stay going. So it opened up. We're only the small little fish out there, so we are, and uh, we're trying hard to make it through. But it's hard to get the breaks when you're the smaller fish. Because I love this county so much, you know. And it's just I'm delighted that the lads, the lads did it for the people of Waterford today because, like, I'm I'm heartbroken.